The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. We tried it. That's all right. We'll get the kinks out another time. I invite your attention this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to grab my Bible here. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. That's page 976 of the Pew Bible. Uh, if you're in need of that, 976 Pew Bible. And uh, I just want to, uh, as you're turning there, just uh, again invite you tonight at 5 o'clock to our church business meeting. Uh, I know that sounds dry and boring, but I promise you there's going to be a lot of good stuff that, that, that we'll, we'll show you. And also, as we enter a, a new stage of a lot of things, you've given us a lot of opinions, and we appreciate you, those who took the survey. Guys, you're such a faithful congregation, and we are so grateful for you and everything that you do. So if you have time this evening and make time in your schedule, uh, that's uh, if you want to put it in chief's terms, 5 o'clock is halftime usually, an hour and a half in. So you're going to be just fine. And the Chiefs will be just fine. They're going to avenge their playoff loss uh, last year. The Steelers lost to the Jaguars. That should tell you that we're going to win this pretty easily. By God's grace, all things, right? And speaking of football, you're turning to Ephesians chapter 2. As we open this morning, we are in the midst of a five-week series through the five solos of the Reformation. We have looked at, in recent weeks, sola scriptura, which is the scripture alone guides matters of faith and practice. Sola fide, faith alone, that there's nothing we can do to justify, to set ourselves apart in God's sight. And today, sola gratia, grace alone. But I want to open with a famous guy that you may know from Saturday Night Live and also from the great Dub Ayers days of the 1980s. Now, how many of y'all know who this guy is? This is, of course, Mike Ditka. He is getting up in years. But Mike Ditka was asked one time what he was thinking when he was resigned after a five-win season when he resigned as the coach of the Chicago Bears. And this is what he says. He said, Scripture tells us that all things come to pass. And he choked up because he had only led his team to five wins that. But it's that phrase, this too shall pass, that Ditka fumbled his biblical citation as it was. You see, Ditka wasn't quoting Scripture. In fact, he was quoting what has become known as a, a, a common thing. And the Bible is the most revered book in all the land. But let me just give you some other phrases, and you see if these are in the Bible. Have you heard the phrase, spare the rod and spoil the child? You ever heard that before? Is that biblical? Well, sort of, but the quote's not in the Bible. How about this one? God works in mysterious ways. You ever heard that one before? Is that in the Bible? Actually, it's not, believe it or not. And for some of you, this is still your life motto. Cleanliness is next to godliness, right? And you know that one. Or if here's another one, God wants you to be very happy if you work hard enough. Is that in the scriptures? No, it's not. Uh, and there's the book called Hezekiah. You've, you've read the book of Hezekiah, right? That's a book in there. These are all things that we think are in the Bible. But this next one really should get your goad. Like Ditka, who said a phrase that seemingly was in the Bible, according to 84% of a recent survey, 
many folks believe that the phrase, quote, God helps those who helps themselves was quoted chapter and verse in the Bible. Wow. Scary enough, isn't it? We don't suffer from a lack of Bibles. We suck from a lack of Bible knowledge. And friends, if it's easy within our culture, even with prominent men, if you will, such as Mike Ditka 30 years ago, to fumble, to, to intercept the Scriptures, how easy it is for us to also fumble and miss the fact that salvation is by grace alone. How easy it is to add other phrases in there. But we as Christians believe, and this is straight scripture, that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ. And there is a distinct assertion during the Reformation times. We believe that we are not saved by our works plus grace. We are saved by grace alone. But like those phrases that have found their way into our vernacular, so too has our cooperation with God and His grace. God, you do your part, and hey God, I'll do my part, and somehow together we'll get to heaven. But against this teaching, the Reformers and the Scriptures, as it was revitalized, emphasized that salvation is by grace and grace alone. This is why Romans 11 tells us in Romans eleven six, it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Grace alone is not found verbatim in the Bible, just as those other phrases were not. The word Trinity is not found verbatim in the Bible. But if you miss it, you miss salvation. If you miss salvation by grace alone, then you miss everything that Christ has to offer you. So if salvation is by grace alone, then what is the place of good works? I mean, come on, Pastor. I mean, don't you believe that good works fall in somewhere? Is Paul against us doing good works? And if he's not, how does that fit into salvation? Are we just fumbling just this truth? No. Friends, this truth today as Christians, the big idea that I want to bring to you, and I I, I specifically worded it this way because I want you to get the severity of getting this correct. As Christians, we must become so convinced of grace alone that we would become nauseously sick at the smallest suggestion that we earned our salvation. Are we more, am I as a pastor more upset at 84% who think God helps those who help themselves than I am the, the conviction that grace is by grace alone? If the gospel is by grace alone, then every conversion, such as Tessa's and others, are a miracle, aren't they? And there are knots in every story, but only the hands of God's grace can untie them. Only the salvation that is in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to his glory alone, is what we will do. Three things today that we'll look at, three truths about grace alone I want you to see. Three questions we'll answer. First, what are we saved from? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. What are we saved by? Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. And then what are we saved to? What are we saved from, saved by, and saved to? And I want you to know that Paul is going to do, like most of you parents have done, you know, uh, Simeon and I have been hanging out at home this weekend. Natalie is traveling, actually, as we speak, back from Oklahoma, uh, the land of the great people, as she says. Uh, Missouri is great people, too, but that's home, and so she went to see her folks for a bit. But Simeon, uh, Simeon had this thing. He had a door. We have a squeaky door at home, and Simeon would run in and out, and he'd slam the door this weekend. And as a good parent, my, you know, the temperature gauge was rising up a bit. Finally, I pulled him aside. I said, Simeon, if you slam that door again, you know, you, there's going to be trouble, right? And so the next time he goes through, he opens the door and looks at me, and I nod, and he goes, and he plays and plays, and 10 minutes later, he comes out and goes, like this, and then, you know, we had to talk about what that trouble might be as he did it again. And it reminded me, as I was thinking through the sermon, sometimes, even though we know the truth, 
we have to be reminded again and again and again and again, or we will find ourselves in trouble if we don't get it right. Will you join me in standing, if you're able this morning, as we look at this cardinal doctrine of the Scriptures, that we are saved by grace alone. It's a very familiar passage for most of you. Ephesians chapter 2. You're especially familiar with the latter half of this chapter, uh, of these verses, but I want you to hear the Scripture as it is. This is God's Word this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And it says, And you, y'all, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of, and power of the air, the and the spirit of disobedience is now at work in the sons, uh, sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and they were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I love this phrase. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing or of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For if we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, I pray this today is a, is a balm to your soul. I pray in a world today where it's all about you and your 15 minutes of fame, no matter what age you are, proving yourself, trying to make a name for yourself, that we are reminded by grace it's all been done for us by the one name above all names, Christ Jesus. Let's pray today. Father, as we come before you, we are reminded that we were once, as these first verses as we'll look at, we were lost in our sin, but God. Father, thank you that this side of heaven, or until you call us, Father, or take us out, or you return, there is still a but God. Father, this morning we would pray that for Christians you would remind us, strengthen us in the gospel this morning. Even if we've heard it a million times, may it refresh us to the nth degree. Father, if there's non-Christians among us, any that don't know Christ, may this truth by your Spirit draw them closer to Christ. We pray this all today in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, guys. In this passage, the Apostle Paul wants to, to understand, as he often does, what God has saved us from. And, and, and like a parent kind of knocking things in your head, you know, uh, Mama said there'd be days like that. There'd be days like that, my Mama said. There are things that we need to be reminded of time and time again. And Paul wants us to be crystal clear on how we are saved, how God has saved us. He, he, he knows your understanding of how you've been saved is essential to how you live the Christian life. And then he wants you to do it and be it. So I want you to see what God has saved us from. Again, look at verses 1 through 3 here. This is very provocative, or at least it may not be to our 21st century mind, but it was very provocative in Paul's day. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, when you wake up in the morning and someone says, how do I look? You say, man, you look dead in your trespasses and sins. That's not going to get you very far. But the biblical gospel, as you'll see on the screen, announces that sinners are saved. Notice the prepositions here. Uh, from God, by God, through God, to God, for God. Our big problem is not just our sin, Christian. 
our big problem, what we are saved from, is God himself. What do sinners do with a righteous God? A famous Scottish preacher said it this way, and I want you to listen to this. It may trick you at first, but he said that, quote, hell is eternity in the presence of God, and heaven is eternity in the presence of God with a mediator. Let me read that again. Hell is eternity in the presence of God, but heaven is eternity in the presence of God with a mediator. You see what he's saying? What he's saying, exactly what Paul is reminding us here, is that if you are a guilty sinner, and we all are, the very last thing you want is to be in the unchecked, unmediated presence of a holy God. This is what you need to be saved from. Friends, Paul will remind us, and we'll break down the verses here in a minute, because we're here to deal, God is here to deal with you as you deserve, that you would be undone, eternally condemned under his judgment. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, took you while you were far away and brought you near through Jesus alone. And God has saved us from spiritual death, from rebellion against him, from slavery to the flesh, from bondage to Satan in the world, and just condemning judgment that he brings upon us. You notice in verse 1 it says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is very important because as many of you know, Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. What is our condition? It is D-E-A-D. There is no life within you outside of Jesus Christ. There's not a flicker. There's not a pilot light that if you just get the right spark to it, it's going to you know, flame out and become a Christian. God made us for life and communion with him. He told Adam that he would die when he rebelled against him. And what did Adam do? He did the exact thing God told him not to do. Friend, if you're here today, do you know why you're made on this earth? You were made to have communion with and relationship with this almighty God. Did you hear that you were made for relationship with him? That's awesome. You're here today. You have purpose in your life. You do. But in your rebellion outside of Christ, you were justly alienated from him. And so he says you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. That's so important to get. We could not experience what God has made us for. You know, you may remember some of you who've studied through the Bible that Moses says in Exodus, he says, God, I want to see you. God, I got to see you. I just got to get a glimpse of who you are. But Moses was also the one, we believe, who penned down the Genesis account with Adam. And in the days that he wrote about when, he, when God walked with Adam and Eve, he understood they were lost in their sin. And what this reminds us of through the Scripture, Moses and others, is that if you have a low view of sin, and Amy will put this up, you'll have a low view of grace. And if you have a low view of grace, you won't get your need that you were dead in your sin. Isn't it true sometimes that to be corrected in your own life, whether that's through an employer or a spouse, that sometimes you just need to hear the truth as it is? And sometimes to understand how good you have it, you've got to see how much you don't have. Isn't that true? I I thank God for uh, wireless devices such as a, a cell phone. The lights went out. Simeon usually has a fan on, but praise God, there's YouTube app, YouTube videos for, for blank, uh, white noise, fan noise. Praise the Lord, right? And thank God that when, you, when your cell phone's down to 30% and you can't turn on the power, you have, a, you have a laptop that you can plug it into and it works, right? You don't know how much you have till you don't know, really, till you lose it all, right? And you see that in electricity, but how much more? 
Christian, Jesus explains that one of the purposes in coming is so we might have life, that you might have life, that when you were dead in your sin, he gave you the very thing that you didn't want, he didn't deserve, but he came to give us something when we were lost. And Paul reminds us of that. He says, apart from Christ, you're unable to experience what you've been created for. You're dead in your sins. The wages of sin is death. And you need to be saved from that. And the very obvious is that you can't create the saving that you need. We've said Lazarus the last couple weeks. Lazarus was in the grave. Nothing could bring him back except the voice of Christ. And nothing can save us from death to life except Jesus himself. And, of course, Ezekiel 37 and the dry bones. The only thing that brings dry bones to life is a spirit who gives them life. You notice there in verse 2, he tells you not only what you need to be saved from, you're dead in your sin, but notice verse 2. He says, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, in which you formerly walked according to the world. You know, I, I, I vaguely remember some of the things, uh, you know, I ran in some uh, college friends yesterday at, at the Pumpkin Patch, South Liberty Carolyn's Pumpkin Patch. Uh, we were out there, and I saw a lot of college friends. We all have kids now. It's just weird because I remember 10 years ago, 12 years ago, we were all single or just getting married. It's just a weird, you know those transitions of life, don't you? And it's weird to remember how we used to walk, how we used to live, how we used to have different things, but God's placed us in different things, and that's fine. And sometimes as Christians, we become short-sighted about where we came from. And Paul tells us in verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the world. You notice that phrase, walk. He doesn't say you've always walked with Jesus. He said at first, before you were a Christian, you walked in the world. But walk is very important. In the Garden of Eden, God walked with Adam and Eve. He fellowshiped with them. In, and, and he goes out for a walk in Genesis 5. Enoch is said to walk with God, and then he's taken up out of the air, one of the only two people in the Bible never to experience death with Elijah. Noah is said to walk with God in contrast to the evil generation. But in verse 2, Paul reminds us that we were not always walking with God, that there was a time, as, as much as we don't want to think about it, that we walked according to the world. We walked according to our sins. We walked according to our rebellion, and we marched to the beat of our own drum. And just like Adam and Eve, we chose to follow the world rather than go to the God who saved us. And he tells us where this walking came from. Did you notice the end of verse 2? He says, you walked according to the course of this world. Following who? Following yourself? Following the latest whatever? No, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Tower View Church, who is this he's speaking of? Who is it? Satan, isn't it? Yeah. We were once in fellowship and under the power of the evil one. Oh, my goodness. And this is not a horror movie. This is real life. We, do you remember that Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews that you are the father of the devil, John chapter 8? Paul said that to all of us in case we forgot that that's where we used to be. And Paul says that the case that are all apart from Christ, we were walking under the power of Satan himself. Wow. We are slaves to the evil one. And notice verse 3, he goes a little bit further. Did you see? He's, he not only says you walked formally, you walked not only by yourself, but with, with Satan, with evil. But verse 3, among whom we all once lived in passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. We'll get there in a second. It's a bleak picture, isn't it? 
Not only were we under the dominion, the power of the evil one, Satan, but we were in bondage to the evil desires that went with it. We treasured our desires, his desires, more than God. And we followed our desires to our own destruction. You know, it's kind of like, on a serious note, if you've ever known someone who's been addicted to something, maybe you have. Isn't it crazy to think all the programs you can throw at somebody, and there are people who come out of those, but whether it's drugs or alcohol or, or, I mean, honestly, they have things for cell phones now. There's addictions to cell phones, literally, to devices of electronics. But people get so captive. We all do in our own ways to the power of those desires that we lie, we steal, we destroy every relationship in our lives to fulfill that desire. You know, your parents leave out some money and, and as, a, as a teen, but you want to get it something and you know if you take that money, you can get the, 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 the fix you're wanting. And Paul reminds us that all of us, apart from Christ, but it still gets worse. Look at the end of verse 3. It says, we were by nature children of wrath. Now, we've talked about baby names here before, right? I do not suggest this for a baby name, all right? But he says, we deserve the wrath of God. What are you saved from, guys? You are not saved just from your sin or bad decisions, you deserve the wrath of God, the holy justice of God. And we have no argument. This is the situation we're in. Paul tells us that this is you. This is where you came from. This is what you are outside of Jesus. And do you see why we can't save ourselves? We're bondaged to our desires. We're bondaged to Satan. We're walking according to our sin. We're in rebellion with God. We're spiritually dead. We're under just judgment. So how can anyone save themselves? They don't want to be saved, but only God can save us from his wrath. And that's why the end of verse 3, it says there that not only were we children of wrath, but it's not just us, but it says like the rest of mankind. Every one of us aren't just bad people, but every one of us apart from Christ, Jew, Greek, American, British, Somali, Russian, you name it, slave, free, male, female, rich, poor, middle class, super in fit shape, 100 out of 100 kiloliters die every week, you know that, but, or 100 crossfitters, whatever you are, this is you. And apart from Christ, we are in a predicament that this bondage can never break. Do you see why grace is so important? Christian, are you reminded today how great God is for you? This is why we must be saved by grace alone. What are you saved from? You are saved from God's wrath. But I want to go to the second point. But before we go there, I want you just to savor that. Christian, we talk a lot about the gospel here. Maybe that's old hat to you. I don't know. But would you never let the grace of God in your life ever take away anything else? Let nothing get in the way of that. Let nothing in your family become more important than Jesus loved me. He died for me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Let nothing in your work life, don't let your success climbing the corporate ladder, white collar, blue collar, whatever it is, getting that promotion in the plant, whatever it is, overtake the fact that Christ died for you. Don't let any pursuit of being a better husband, a better wife, a better child, a better whatever, overtake the pursuit that it's by grace that you are saved and there's nothing more important than that. Does that mean those things aren't important? No, all in God's place in providence and time. Because we aren't in a position to cooperate with grace, may we be reminded what we are saved from. Let's go to verse 4. What are we saved by? If you are a highlighter, if you're an underliner, if you're a memorizer, can I encourage you as your pastor, one of the two pastors here, to 
chalk up this verse that you're about to read. This has been called the greatest Bible verse ever made. Well, Darren, isn't all the Bible? Yes, all the Bible is God's Word. John 3.16. There's going to be some guy at the Chiefs game with a big belly that says John 3.16 on it. No one's going to know what that means for God to love the world. But I pray also, if you're going to the Chiefs game today, would you paint Ephesians 2.4 on your chest? I mean that. Or a shirt, whatever. It's that important. Ephesians 2.4. What are we saved from? We're saved by God's wrath. What are we saved by? Glorious gospel. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. But God, aren't you grateful for that? God, I don't got much in my life, but I got a but God. God, I don't got much to bring to the table, but but God. But God, those are the best words in the Bible. Notice the big change from our predicament. But who's the subject of the next sentence? Our predicament is not just, we're not just saved from the wrath of God, but God. I want you to hear this, and you'll see it on the screen. God is a big spender, and that's good news for us, because there's no sinner that ever comes for him where mercy has depleted him, and none ever will. God's mercy never runs out on you, Christian. When you go back and you do the same thing, the squeaky door, Simeon thing, all day, every day, and you, oh, what were you thinking? God accepts you back, not without consequence, but God who is rich in mercy. Those are my favorite verses. I've been convinced of that this week. God who's rich in mercy. Are you rich in mercy to the people around you as God has been rich in mercy to you? But God, being rich in mercy because of his love, has opened up the door for our salvation by the most costly payment, and that's the buy, by the death and blood of his own son. But he immediately piles on this just God has every right to condemn you. He has every right to throw you out with the bathwater. But in the most surprising, generous, and loving way, he doesn't do that. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, notice what it said. He made us what, church? He made us alive. D-E-D, D-E-A-D, verses 1 through 3. A-L-I-V-E, verses 3, 4 to 7. Look, He doesn't love us because of something in us. He doesn't love us because we have the potential to possibly get to heaven if we do the right steps. He emphasizes that it is His mercy and His great love and His grace that is the impetus for our salvation. We don't deserve it. We don't have something that compels it within us. It doesn't say anything like that. Paul acknowledges this. Look at this. He, he says, but God, being rich in mercy. Why was he rich in mercy? Because of his great love towards us. But then he reminds us, guys, I know where you were. We just talked about this. Even when you were in your sins, he made us alive. What is your greatest hope when Jesus comes back? Is your greatest hope that someday you'll see loved ones, and that's a great thing, and, you know, that's a great Bible question to pursue, I believe we'll know those in whatever capacity God allows that have walked in the faith before. But you know what the greatest hope of a Christian really is? It's not the streets of gold or loved ones or the glassy sea or the pearly gates, as great and good as those are in God's perfect realm. The greatest hope that we have is what he continues on in the verse. He not only made us alive, but he made us alive, verse 5, together in and with Christ. What is your greatest hope at the return of Jesus or when Jesus calls you home is that your body is going to be resurrected 
that you will be as Jesus is, that the glass you see dimly through now in 1 Corinthians will be fully lit. Your faith will become sight, all because you have been made alive. Not only this, but he has to pause and say, and he gets really, you can kind of see Paul jumping in the pulpit. I'm not, a, I'm not a jumping preacher, but some of you guys know those who are. Keeps the energy going, and I appreciate that. It's a good workout, pastor side. But you notice what he says? He gets so excited. He's given the bad news. You're saved by, you are saved from God's wrath. You were walking in your sins. You're walking in your desires. You're walking in all the stuff that you shouldn't. But God, and then he gets ahead of himself. You may have a kind of a, a parenthesis in verse 5 at the end of the verse or a hyphenated phrase, but he says, by grace you've been saved. Wait, Paul, you can't say that till verse 8. You're getting ahead of yourself, man. He's excited. He wants to remind you that this is all by grace. It's almost, he just can't wait till verse 8. He said it's burning within him. It's by grace you've been saved. It's not of yourselves. Not only, and he has to tell you right now, it's like the little kid that shakes your hand, daddy, 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 and you're having a serious conversation, all they want to tell you is they love you, and you say, be quiet, and then you get put in your place. Ever happened to you before? Paul is telling you a very serious conversation. This is where you are, but by golly, this is where God has brought you, but God. Not only has he made you alive, but notice verse 6, it goes on, but you have been raised with him. And I love the old King James on this, but uh, reading out of the ESV, but it, and, and he has raised us up with him, that's Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. The King James you might have says the heavenlies, the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Wow. He has made you his child to sit at his table with his son and reign with him. You contribute nothing to this, but only the sin that needs forgiving. God does it all. What's this remind us of? The dire need in the world today, and you'll see this up there, is churches who are alive, who are brimming, who are enthralled with God's glory in Christ. But, oh, there's so much silliness going on. Friends, we need this to re-invite us. Did another church growth strategy revitalize them? No, there's nothing wrong with that. Did another whatever make it happen? No, it was by grace that they were saved from God's wrath. It's by grace that they are saved now. Look, a hard human heart is not overcome with gimmicks and gadgets or cheap tricks. It's only conquered by the word of God and prayer through grace alone. The gospel is not a program. It's not a gimmick. It's not a phase or a product. It's the bread, water, and sunshine and shelter of a Christian. And that's why in verse 7, he goes on to say, so that, why is God doing all this? I mean, th- Paul, why would God do this? You saw, you, you described this pretty t- terribly in verses 1 to 3, Paul. So why in verse 7 does he say, all this is going to happen? So that, consequential phrase here, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He's already said that word grace several times, and now he's going to emphasize it. There are some who believe in this world today that, that if, you're, if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, that someday you will be just kind of just cease to exist. They call it annihilationalism. You'll just cease to exist in eternity. God will just get rid of you. But whether you are in God's presence in heaven or the opposite way, you are in God's presence. But it's only those in Christ who will receive the immeasurable riches of his grace towards us as it is. 
I love Mark Twain. I love this quote. Some of you are dog people. I thought of you specifically. Sorry, cat people, Meg Edmonds and others who love cats. But Mark Twain said it this way. Mark Twain, not a Christian, by the way, a Christian cynic. Uh, most uh, uh, Tom Sawyer, you may remember that story. He wrote about um, uh, our, uh, you know, all these things. You can go read the story, but he was a silly guy in church because Mark Twain did not like the Jesus of the Bible. It's a very true fact. He said this, heaven goes by favor. If it is by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. Oh, do you see what he's saying? If heaven goes by favor, if I went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. What is he trying to say? He is making the point, Who this irreverent, godless, even though he understood Christianity, he's making the point, Christian, that if you're saved, it is by favor alone, not favor given to you by a pastor, a shaman, a priest, a religious leader. It is given to you by grace alone through Jesus alone. That's the only way it makes sense. Grace is not deserving. God's works is not your work. You are saved from your sin, rebellion, and God's just judgment by grace alone. So will all dogs go to heaven? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Disney does, but I don't know if the Bible really speaks to it. You can figure that one out. But we know this, all who place their trust in Christ by grace alone will be saved. Friends, if a non-Christian man of his time can get the very fact that we are saved by grace alone, why do we live within our churches so often, especially in relation to one another, by law alone or righteousness alone? Well, this person doesn't meet my standard of living, therefore I can't talk to them even though they're a Christian. Or... This person's not the same color I am, therefore they, they're not welcome in our church. I thank God for a faithful congregation that is anti to those things. But would you pray that we're guarded against those things? Would you pray that other churches that speak high of grace will be the first hand to reach out by grace? Does that mean we're perfect? That doesn't mean the pastor or the staff or the congregation is perfect. But may we be quicker to forgive than to accuse. May we be quicker to show this immeasurable grace practically in the body and extend the benefit of the doubt quicker than we are to extend the hand of accusation. Finally, we are saved from God's wrath. We are saved by God's grace. And what are we saved to? And we'll end with this. We are saved to. Look at verses 8 through 10. And we'll start there in verse 8. He reminds us, many of you memorize this as part of the Awana memorization, for by grace you have been saved. He is going to use that word grace five more times in a different ways, just in case you missed it. It's by grace alone. And just in case you thought it was deserving or something you did, this is actually the fourth time Paul uses that phrase, by grace you have been saved. By God's favor, by God's saving work, we brought nothing to contribute. It's a great reminder that salvation doesn't start with you. Even faith is a gift. New life is a gift. It's opened by faith. It keeps on giving grace upon grace upon grace. You'll notice that here. For by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. I want to focus on that phrase, through faith and not of works. In other words, your salvation has been received. It's not been gained. You didn't gain it. You didn't earn it. You didn't climb the, the, uh, the knock on as many doors as you can for Jesus Club and Tower View Baptist Church. You didn't get it by bringing the best potluck pie or whatever else you may bring to the potluck, as great as it is. 
You received it by believing and giving your trust. Trust in whom? Well, trust in a God who has risen from the dead. Trust in Christ and all His promises. All you did was received by the gift He gave. That faith is contributing not a contribution to your salvation. It's the means by which you are saved. That's why He tells us it's a gift of God. Your salvation is God's gift to you, not a gift to yourself. You know, I, I, I remember uh, as a young married man, I, I often use these illustrations so, because I'm sure someone else has been here, but I remember thinking when I bought, and I don't even remember what it was now, but uh, it was early in our marriage, and I remember getting Natalie something for her birthday. I think it was a, um, I, actually, she'll tell me what it was. It was a uh, one of those scrub cleaners, you know, who, who likes to scrub the uh, uh, inside of the bathroom or, or the tub. And it was one of those scrub things you put up there, and you know you scrub it. You don't have to wipe it. You can just turn on the battery power, and it, you know, does one of those things. Uh, this is great. This is wonderful. You know, I, I want to help clean. My wife likes to clean, you know, all these great things. And I remember that I bought this gift almost for myself because I'm thinking if I can do the work for her, she'll be happy. And then, But she looked at me and said, are you serious? And I said, happy birthday. You know, how are you? I'm sure you've never done that before at all. And I thought about that as I was writing this at the hospital the other day, waiting for Simeon's therapy, and I thought, you know, isn't that how we think sometimes about salvation? Boy, I got this salvation. I'm going to give it to myself. I'm going to give it to someone else. Well, you didn't give it to yourself. God in his grace gave it to you, and you get to give it to others by grace. There's nothing we did to it. You don't get to say it. You don't get to save yourself, but by golly, you get to tell others about it. And I remember my wife telling lots of people about that gift. This is, I think this is our first year of marriage. She was out of town this week, so I didn't get to verify. I didn't want to bring it up over the phone. I'd probably, you know, I don't know if I'd see her the rest of the week, but it is what it is. But friends, that's not how salvation works. God gives you the gift. You don't get a gift for yourself, for your wife, or anyone else. You don't give the gift to yourself. You get the gift. And that's why he reminds us in verse 9, as we start to wrap this up, verse 9, he says, So, and this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. Faith is a gift. And, verse 9, not a result of works. Not a result of works, so no one may boast. If our salvation is tied to what we've done, then we should look at every lost person and say, Look, I'm better than you. I found this, you didn't, nah, 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 I got Jesus, you don't. That's not how it works. The only thing we can boast in is the fact that Jesus saved us. We are saved by, I'm going to say this, and for many of you this is old hat, but here it is. Friends, we are saved by works. We are saved by the works of Jesus Christ. Well, Darren, you're, 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 you're not saved by works. Yes, you are. You were saved by the work, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not you, him, his works, Jesus' works. And that's why for the fifth time in verse 10, he tells us this. He says, we are his workmanship. We weren't saved by our work. We are his masterpiece. We are his work. Stop to think about that for a second. We believe in salvation by works, not our works, God's works, not my works, Christ's works. Salvation is by work. It's by Christ alone and his work on the cross. So if you want to trick your friends today, 
go up to him and say, man, I'm saved by works, and just wait for the punchline, but by Jesus' works, and you'll have a lot of fun with that. But aren't you grateful that God loves us so much to keep us, allow us to remain where we are? Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that you aren't the same Christian you were even five days ago, an hour ago, that we are God's workmanship. We are His workmanship, literally conforming to Christ as it will be glorious to Christ. We are saved from God in our sin. We are saved by God's grace. There's no place in the Christian work and, and Christian theology. There's no part of works. Works don't save you, but works show that you're saved. So we can finally be what He created us to be and walk in communion with Him. We have new life in Him. He's prepared not by grace for our good works, but we, are, we work out the works by grace alone. Guys, God has given you something special in your life to do, even if it's mundane as it is, to do something and fulfill something only He can call you to fulfill. And you remember Adam and Eve were created and blessed in Genesis 1, and God blessed them and gave them dominion, and they rebelled against Him, and that image was lost. But here, here again, once again, we were broken and defaced. But right now, God says, not only did I take you from what you were, I saved you from my wrath, you were saved by grace, but now you are saved to be my guide, my gal, my ambassador wherever I send you. Well, Darren, I want to be the ambassador to the coolest country for Jesus ever. What if the coolest country for Jesus ever is just being a normal person in a normal job in a normal Midwest city, wherever that is? Are you okay with that? It's not my will. It's God's will be done. Let me just close with, with six short, pithy statements to give you. What does this mean for us? Well, friends, there are at least six implications here, and I'll go quickly. I know time is short. I want to remind you that if you're saved by grace alone, theolo- and, and this is speaking mainly to my heart as a pastor, but theological arrogance devalues grace. And there's going to be a key phrase in there that means devalues what I mean by that is many of us respond to grace like a child at Christmas. You know how this goes. You buy them this big, big gift, and what do they end up playing with at the end of the day? Oh, the box, not the wrapping. They want the string. And we are like that. We respond to grace like a child who plays with the box and not the gift, and we settle for information when transformation is promised. It confuses knowledge with maturity so it doesn't treasure the grace alone. Look, if Jesus and grace alone, you're saved by grace alone, pastor, I got it, is merely head knowledge to you, then you are devaluing grace because it has never or at least recently hit your heart. And we pray that it does. Second, I want to say this, that self-pity devalues grace. Self-pity devalues grace. Self-pity eats away your soul because it questions the provision of God's gracious care. God, why am I in this spot? God, if you really loved me, you would never have brought me this far. You'd never let me, maybe you've said this, you'd never let me marry this person. God, these kids, they're not mine. They're, they're aliens, God. What are you talking about? Woe is me. And we have greater esteem for Jesus is the remedy when we realize that our murmuring and cynicism aren't going to get us anywhere, if we are throwing a pity party for ourselves every day because of where God has brought us, then we are devaluing, decrying. We're saying, God, ah, grace alone, pfft, forget that. Materialism devalues grace because it treasures momentary physical pleasure than more the eternal riches of God's grace. 
Look, I, I posted this on Facebook the other day at, at 3 in the morning on a treadmill and staring at a blank wall. You, you kind of come with all sorts of thoughts that come across your mind. God's not against ha- you having stuff. God's against stuff having you. Do you understand that? God, look, guys, if God gives you to be a millionaire and God says, go build me a house that has 50 rooms and 27 and a half bathrooms and however many whatever else is out there, and God, God uses that for his glory, then let him do that in your life. But if God is devalued and grace is devalued in your life because you just have to have that thing because God hasn't provided it. So, God, let me help you out. I got some extra money in my bank account. Lord, just let me go get it. And that thing becomes the thing that's having you. Then you have devalued grace. This is what next one, number four, may hit a lot of you. Telling yourself you're all alone devalues grace because it denies the grace of the presence of Savior who's with you wherever you go. God, if you would have just been there. Oh, Jesus, if you would have just been there, Lazarus would never have died. But you don't have to load your burdens of the world on your shoulders today because the Lord is with you, friend. And he welcomes you to cast all your care. You can still pray, which is what you need to do most. Have you forgotten this week, no matter what you face, that God is with you? That he's for you and working through you? Number five, legalism devalues grace by looking into the law to produce what only grace can. I'm speaking to a Baptist crowd here, but the ironic thing about legalism is it doesn't make people work harder. It makes them give up. Well, that's not what we do around here. If you want to be a Christian, then you have to, some would say, do this and 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 this and this and this and this and this. Are we Pharisees or are we Christians? Now, let me say a word to our younger generation here. We have grown up, some of us, in churches where legalism, where rules have pervaded grace. But our generation has done the opposite in so many ways. We speak high of grace alone, but when someone says the Bible says this and gives a command of Scripture, well, that's not my liberty. That's just not what I do. Well, it doesn't matter what you do. It matters what Christ says. Well, but, 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 but that's legalism. Are following the words of Christ legalism? They can be if you take them that way, but they can also be the greatest freedom you've ever had. Lastly, information devalues grace. Information devalues grace. This kind of goes in with number one, but a little bit different. Friend, if you have more, let me just say it this way. You have more truth in your life, Christian, today than you will ever live out this side of heaven. Has the pursuit of knowledge become an idol in your life? Because you've got to know more about God and more about God. And please hear me clearly, that is great. We lack, it says in Hosea, the people died because of the lack of a knowledge of God. We should know more about Christ and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. But even good information can become an idol that devalues grace. How do you value grace? Go home today over lunch and say, Lord, thank you I was over there. But God, you brought me over here. What a great God we serve. Will you pray with me this morning?